ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, tougher English language requirements and fast-tracked visas for highly skilled workers. Will the government's migration overhaul fix a broken system? Also, the government's making life tougher for foreign owners of Australian property as it tries to ease the housing crisis and extended warranties. Are they worth the cost for peace of mind or just a rip-off? Lawyers are taking one retail giant to court. We far too often see Australian businesses attempting to tell consumers that they need to pay extra for their rights. Thanks for your company. After a massive post-pandemic surge in migration, the number of people moving to Australia is set to fall in the next couple of years as a result of a new strategy launched by the federal government today. More stringent English language requirements for international students and fast-track entry for specialised workers are among the incentives. The peak business groups and unions are backing the strategy, as Samantha Donovan reports. After the reopening of Australia's borders, the federal government forecasts net migration in 2023 would be about 250,000. But at last count in September, more than 500,000 people had already arrived here. The government's new migration strategy is aiming to bring the annual rate back down to the quarter million mark. The Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. And it's really important that we do that as quickly as possible because we can only run this successful migration program for our country when we've got widespread community support. And we won't have that if the numbers remain at these unsustainable levels. Cracking down on the number of student visas is one of the government's main plans. More than half of that group go on to become permanent residents with low-skilled jobs. The new plan will bring in tougher English language requirements and checks that the students are actually studying. Claire O'Neill. Every piece of evidence and research shows us that English language skills is a key determinant of how successful an international student will be both in their studies but also in their work. Now what we have seen with students who are struggling with their English is that they are at much higher risk of exploitation and that they are likely to gather in really low paid work and not be able to move out of that over their time in our country. Now we want to run a good um, integrity filled education system here but we also want to set our students up for success and if we allow them to come here without functional English that will allow them to work we're not doing that. The International Education Association of Australia is welcoming most of the plan. Former Victorian Liberal MP Phil Honeywood is its CEO. It will bring us up into a league with Canada UK when it comes to increasing English language entry standards. He agrees, though, that fewer international students in Australia will mean institutions will earn less money. It's a $40 billion uh, annual injection into the Australian economy. You know, it potentially has a big impact, however. Thankfully, the government have targeted the lower end of the ecosystem, the private vet colleges, uh, where many of them are not providing a quality of education. And the government also focused on the back end, where too many young people are graduating and staying in the country and not getting course-related employability. So for your typical public university, we don't envisage uh, any major change in student numbers. 
Australia's been struggling to compete with other nations to attract highly skilled workers, and slow visa processing has been a big part of the problem. The government's plan includes seven-day visa processing for applicants with specialised skills. With those really high-skilled people, we are competing with every other country in the world to get those people here. We've had this mentality as a country that, you know, everyone wants to come here and we're about keeping them out. Well, we've got to switch that mindset. We're in a global race for talent and we're not going to win it unless we do basic things like give people fast answers on their applications. Mark Smith is Group Managing Director of recruitment agency People to People. He agrees fast-tracking visa processing will attract more talent to Australia. It's so nice for it to have it on the agenda and that these, because over the last um, five to six years, particularly, it's been, um, nobody seems to be uh, taking notice of these issues that we've had. And there was a lot of tweaking around the edges and particularly around these lists, people on the lists or off the lists and a multitude of different classes of visas. That that was very hard to navigate. Uh, and as a recruiter, um, the, because it was so hard, it was very difficult for us to then uh, pitch for talent that was overseas to come into Australia. It's unusual to see both the peak business and trade union organisations backing a government plan. But the Business Council of Australia and the ACTU were at today's launch to give the strategy their support. Bran Black is the Business Council's chief executive. We strongly endorse the move to long-term planning in relation to Australia's migration settings. That means that we can appropriately balance up the need to bring in the skill sets that the country requires with the need to ensure that we've got an appropriate opportunity to forward plan around housing, around infrastructure, schooling, hospitals and other services that government provides. And we also support the efforts to crack down on dodgy providers of training. Liam O'Brien is the Acting Secretary of the ACTU. The legacy of the last decade in government has been one of neglect that's seen rampant exploitation of temporary workers and employers gaming the system to use temporary migration as a source of cheap labour rather than training up local skilled workers. Today this ends with this migration strategy. With the Business Council and the ACTU backing the migration strategy, the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, is dismissing the opposition's criticism of the plan. The opposition were urging us to act. In fact, up until quite recently, they were saying more migrants faster. Now, we see how the winds change and they change their position from week to week to week on this. We had a higher than normal intake. Our government has set a bold and ambitious plan to bring it back to normal by next year, and that's what Minister Giles and I will be working towards. That's the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, Samantha Donovan reporting. Well, Dan Tien is the Shadow Minister for Immigration. He joined me earlier. Dan Tien, thanks for being with us. The government has promised to bring migration numbers back under control. Is 250,000 migrants a year sustainable? Well, what the government is actually saying is that the number of migrants coming to this country has increased by over 100,000 since May. They forecast in May that it would be 1.5 million over five years. Now they're saying it's 1.6 million over five years. Now, when you've got pressure on housing prices, on rents, on the ability of people to see a GP, on congestion, uh, that is too high. And it's not what the government said before the last election. Okay, there has been a surge in migrants post-pandemic for a number of reasons. But just returning you to that question, is 250,000 migrants a year about right in your view? 
Well, it, it obviously depends on what has come before it. And if it's um, 1.6 million over five years that have come before it, um, then you need to look at and see whether that number is, is too high. In the short term, in the first two years of the Albanese Labor government, they're on track to bring 900,000 people into this country. Now, we've never seen numbers like that in our history, and that is too high. Just to be clear, considering that surge that you've just described, would you like to see the number lower than 250,000 in 2025? Well, we will put a policy together and we will announce that before the next election. But we have been warning now for 12 months that Labor are pursuing a big Australia policy by stealth. Uh, it's now clear that it is just a big Australia policy. They are tinkering around the edges. But what these numbers today show is that rather than it being 1.5 million over five years, it's now 1.6 million. Now, we think that is too high. Martin Parkinson says the reason migration is broken is because of, quote, almost willful neglect over a decade. Labor's only been in power for 18 months. So does the coalition take any responsibility? Well, I mean, Martin Parkinson might have said that, but the review that the Labor Party commissioned uh, said nothing of the type. And what the review... Well, he headed was- the review. He did head the review, but in the actual review itself, uh, there's nothing like that. And what you have to remember is that each government has to deal with the issues that they confront. So, for instance, when we came to power, we were dealing with the illegal maritime arrivals that Labor had left us, and that was a huge problem to address over time. Now, what the Labor Party are facing is a cost-of-living crisis, pressure on inflation. And what they need to be doing is ensuring that they're addressing things like the housing crisis that we're facing at at the moment, the rental crisis we're facing at the moment, the upward pressure that's being placed on interest rates, which is obviously then as they increase hurting family budgets. These are the issues that the Labor Party need to be dealing with here and now. And what we're not seeing is any indication in the immediate that they're going to try and deal with that. All we hear is talk, but no action in the short to medium term. Do you support tightening up English language requirements for international students? Well, it it depends how they do it and it depends when they do it. So one of the issues we've got is in this review and then what was announced today, we're seeing no timeframes and no detail. So we don't know what the government's got planned when it comes to the English language test. We don't know when they will introduce it and whether it will apply to the 90,000 international students who have already been granted visas, will it apply to them or not? All these questions remain to be answered and we're not hearing anything when it comes to the detail from the government. So it's very hard to say whether we support anything when the detail is so vague, the timelines are so vague, and we don't know how they're going to go about it. Dan Tien, thank you. Thank you, David. And Dan Tien is the Shadow Minister for Immigration. Well, people often make the link between migration and the housing crisis, but how significant really is migration in the mix? 
Proposed reforms announced over the weekend will target foreign investment, making it more expensive for overseas owners to leave Australian homes vacant. Elizabeth Cramsey takes a look. It's been a busy few days for the federal government. Today's migration reforms come hot on the heels of foreign investment changes announced by Treasurer Jim Chalmers yesterday. By increasing the fees for people who leave them vacant off the rental market, uh, then we will raise money for the Commonwealth to invest in our housing agenda and other priorities. Uh, And we will also incentivise the building of more new homes because the tripling of fees applies to established homes and we'll also incentivise more rental properties coming onto the market by making it more expensive for people to leave them empty. Foreign-owned homes left vacant will see penalties lift by six times the current rate. Fees for foreign buyers looking to purchase homes will be doubled, while fees will be cut for foreign investors purchasing build-to-rent projects. So will they do anything to help ease the nation's housing crisis? Chris Richardson is an economist with Rich Insight. By and large, they are good measures, but no, uh, they won't make all that much of a difference. Um, partly because uh, the federal government doesn't hold that many direct levers over housing. Uh, To the extent that it does, it's mostly over foreign buyers of housing and what it's doing there. uh, It's trying to make it easier, cheaper, in fact, for foreign money to arrive if that money is uh, part of building homes for Australians. Migrants and foreign investors are often blamed for fueling the housing crisis, but it's a very complex area and most economists say it's not something that can be explained easily. So who or what really is to blame? For 40 years, arguably longer, uh, the key problem in housing markets is uh, that we've made decisions locally, uh, council meeting by council meeting, neighbourhood by neighbourhood, uh, by and large saying no to many things to which we should have said yes. Uh, and even when we do say yes, uh, yes comes with a whole bunch of uh, conditions that make uh, any construction much more expensive than it would otherwise be. Uh, if you keep doing that for a long enough period, if there's um, uh, enough not in my backyard, eventually there just aren't uh, the homes available for Australians. Advocacy groups say the government's moves are a step in the right direction, but only a small one. Mayor Zizi is from everybody's home. It's a step in the right direction. It's certainly uh, not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it'll raise some badly needed money for the budget that we hope uh, gets spent on social housing, which is where it's needed. But uh, this isn't going to make a huge difference to affordability. Uh, Foreign investors don't own uh, anywhere near as much housing in Australia as people seem to think they do. And the homes that are owned are extremely high yet. Mayor Zizi says spin campaigns aren't what's needed right now. What we've seen the government do over the last couple of days is roll out some initiatives and messages that are about creating the impression that the housing crisis has been imported into Australia somehow. Um, This is a crisis that's been created by government policy in Australia. Only government policy in Australia is going to fix it. What we really need the federal government to start doing is directly supplying homes to people who, who 
need it. That used to be what the federal government did back when housing was affordable in Australia, um, and we need to see them take on these these tax handouts. Those that those things are what's causing the housing crisis in Australia. Many in the housing sector say serious reform is needed before real progress can be made, and Mayor Zizi says this will include options that are politically hard to sell, such as changing Australia's tax system. So what we really need to see the federal government do is take on some of these big handouts that domestic investors are using to distort the housing market. We're talking about negative gearing and capital gains tax concession, especially for investors. The Labor government will attempt to legislate the measures next year. Elizabeth Cramsey. This is PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Well, if you've tried to buy a new fridge or TV, you've probably been offered an extended warranty, perhaps quite forcefully. But is it worth paying extra for peace of mind? Retail giant JB Hi-Fi is now being taken to court in a class action alleging their extended warranties offer little to no extra protection. Isabel Masali reports. Melbourne resident Dave Raby thinks he knows consumer rights a bit more than the average shopper but he was still surprised by a tense interaction when he bought a TV and Xbox from JB Hi-Fi. After refusing an extended warranty, the manager was called. He strongly advised me to take up the product, at which point I definitely refused and he grudgingly signed the paperwork. And knowing a little bit about consumer law, I'm no expert, but being challenged on that in store by both the attendant, what we call it, the salesperson, sorry, and then the store manager was very intimidating. Standing there in a store, you know, you're making a purchase. It's a lot of money. He knows other customers wouldn't refuse. If my brother hadn't harped on about it at a family luncheon, then I wouldn't be, to be honest. It's one of those things that they don't teach you in schools, and that's fine. But uh, yeah, it's definitely something that people should. No. So perhaps as you organise Christmas shopping, we're going to take you through some consumer law basics. It's a big topic because electronics retailer JB Hi-Fi is being accused of misleading and deceptive conduct in its sale of extended warranties. Miranda Nagy is the principal lawyer at Morris Blackburn, which has launched legal action. People buy them believing that they're going to give you additional protections, but in fact we have really strong rights in Australia under the Australian Consumer Law, and that means that when you buy a product you get something completely free of charge, which is a warranty that it's going to be of acceptable quality. And if you have a problem with it, you can go back to the manufacturer or retailer and ask for a remedy. We essentially say that the JB Hi-Fi warranties really add nothing of material value to what people already get for free and they're really expensive. When contacted by PM, JB Hi-Fi Group, which also owns The Good Guys, provided this statement. JB Hi-Fi takes compliance with its legal obligations very seriously and considers that it has complied with relevant laws at all times. JB Hi-Fi intends to vigorously defend the proceedings. Morris Blackburn says it hopes to recover millions of dollars through this class action. And Associate Professor Catherine Kemp believes it's a significant case. She's a consumer law expert at the University of New South Wales. I think it's a very important wake-up call for businesses in general because we far too often see Australian businesses attempting to tell consumers that they need to pay extra for their rights. And the reality is 
consumers have already paid for these rights because Australian businesses build the cost of the Australian consumer law into the costs of their products. So when you are buying a warranty that covers the same as the consumer law, then you're paying twice for that protection. She says you need to ask the retailer, what does this extended warranty give me that isn't already given under Australian consumer law? One of the most important consumer guarantees is that goods will be of acceptable quality. And that means they have to be safe, durable, um, free from defects, and they've got to be fit for the normal uses uh, that they have and also have an acceptable appearance. A big question is how long should those goods last for? And the Australian consumer law doesn't specify a set time, a set number of years for all goods or even for certain kinds of products. The answer as to how long they should last is it depends. And that depends on the type of the product, cost, quality of materials, how you used it, and statements made by the retailer or manufacturer. If the store refuses to return a faulty item... Then you need to impress on them that you are um, entitled to those rights under the Australian consumer law and that you're relying on your consumer guarantees. Now, if they claim that the consumer guarantees don't apply or that you didn't um, pay for the extra warranty or, as they often say, you're outside the warranty period of one year. Now, if that's a product that you'd reasonably expect to last longer than a year, you can say that the Australian consumer law gives you those rights without any warranty from them. Failing that, she says you can contact the store's head office, the ACCC or the Office of Fair Trading. Isabel Masali reporting. The battle over who will replace Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk is underway, with Health Minister Shannon Fentiman declaring she'll take on Deputy Premier Stephen Miles for the top job. MPs will come together for a caucus meeting on Friday, and if the leadership ballot is contested, it could take weeks to resolve. It was all sparked by Anastasia Palaszczuk's announcement yesterday she's stepping down after almost nine years in the role. Craig Emerson is a former Federal Labor Minister and member for Rankin in Queensland. Craig Emerson, thanks for your time. In the pantheon of Labor leaders in Australia, where would you place Anastasia Palaszczuk? Labor legend, and I don't say that lightly, but uh, this is a party with a very long history formed um, in the late 1800s, actually, uh, and so there's been a lot of heroes of the Labor Party, but it's pretty much without precedent that uh, someone who could take on the leadership of, of a state party when it had only seven out of 89 seats and then at the next election didn't go close, actually one government. That's amazing. And then one government again and again. Uh, I just add in Queensland that it's a bit similar to Western Australia. Um, it's not uh, easy to win government and it's not that easy to hold government. There's a bit of a whoosh factor with voters in Queensland and I remember Kim Beasley telling me this about Western Australia. Not so many rusted on voters, so they judge you each and every election, you know, very carefully and to win that extraordinary victory um, in 2015 and then and win again 2017, 2020, uh, it's just an amazing effort. And um, I hope 
Um, and I'm sure that Anastasia Palaszczuk would be very proud of it and I wish her all the very best for the future. What was her secret sauce? What was the, the, the secret behind that sustainable success? Authenticity, I think, would be one way of describing it. Anastasia's never had any sort of, you know, airs and graces about her. She speaks in a very plain language. Uh, importantly, from my perspective, she doesn't really speak what I'd call political speak, and that is so many politicians end up living out of each other's pockets. They speak the same language across the table, you know, in parliaments, whereas Anastasia Palaszczuk just always spoke like uh, an everyday person, and I think people connect with that. Others have been authentic, though, too. Campbell Newman comes to mind, but he crashed and burned, I guess. Was there something else? Yeah, he... That was self-inflicted. So Campbell Newman was a successful uh, Lord Mayor of Brisbane, uh, came with a kind of moderate persona uh, and then decided to gut the public service, um, which meant both the quality of service would would suffer if you weren't in the public service and if you were in the public service, you'd be pretty worried that you might be next. So really Campbell Newman was the architect of his own demise but only lasted one term. But it is, you know, in a fairly in and out sort of arrangement in Queensland politics in the last couple of decades. No one doubts her popularity over three terms until quite recently when something seems to have changed. Obviously cost of living is is hurting leaders everywhere. Crime has been a big issue on the ground and this is all a around the time that tabloids were criticising Anastasia Palaszczuk for her kind of red carpet lifestyle. Did any of that play into it, do you think? It's difficult for me to say for sure, but I can imagine people, it wouldn't be so much the sort of red carpet issue, but if they've got issues that are pressing themselves personally, such as a law and order and cost of living, then probably they'd be kind of less understanding of that. Um, and, you know, as I said, it's just in Queensland politics, there comes a time and maybe Anastasia Palaszczuk um, just concluded that that time is now and that's why she made the announcement on the weekend. That's Craig Emerson, a former federal Labor minister. Well, have you ever heard of gamber grass? It's an invasive weed that's thriving across northern Australia and is used as cattle feed in the Northern Territory and Queensland. It's also extremely flammable, placing properties and national parks under threat of more intense bushfires. And many want it banned. Jane Barden reports. In August this year, nearly 4,000 hectares of the NT's premier Litchfield National Park tourist attraction was burnt. It was deliberately lit, but flammable four-metre-high gamba grass, which is growing wild through the park, aided its spread. It now covers 20% of the park, and the chair of the Litchfield Tourism Association, Matthew Phillips, wants the NT government to do something about it. Gamba fires are extremely hot. They literally boil the sap in the trees and reduce all of our lovely trees to almost like grasslands. Yeah, it's terrible seeing the impact of gamba grass. You know, I think more needs to be done fighting it into the national parks. Parks and Wildlife need more funding. They certainly don't have the resources they need to do their job. The NT Environment Minister, Kate Warden, says the government is making efforts to better control Gampa, with part of its total $6 million a year budget for tackling weeds. 
To combat the start of the wet season, supercharging its growth, the government will give out $100,000 worth of weed spraying chemicals to small rural landholders, as it did last year. We've been committed as a government since we came in in 2016 to making real inroads into Gamba across the top end of the Northern Territory. What we have really seen is a lot more collaboration between landowners and the Northern Territory government. But many rural landholders, including Diana Rickard, feel controls are still inadequate. On Darwin's outskirts, she's lost sheds and been under threat from Gamba fires several times in recent years. The only reason that um, my home and everything was not destroyed was because they bombarded everything with, you know, from the planes overhead. Diana Rickard thinks the government isn't doing enough to remove Gamba from its own land. Well, I would have thought that they would have put a lot more money into it, at least. It's just been hopeless. You know, I mean, along the power lines and the Crown lands, they haven't had fire breaks. And, and gamba grass is just sky high in those areas. The NT government officially requires gamba to be removed from remote parts of the NT and controlled nearer to urban centres. It provides $150,000 a year to a volunteer community gamba army to help. Kirsty Howie is the NT Environment Centre's director. The Northern Territory's commitment to resolving the problem of gamba is pretty woeful and continues to be woeful. It's a drop in the ocean. Gamba, first introduced from Africa in the 1930s, can still be grown on NT in Queensland cattle stations. The NT Cattlemen's Association wants to keep access to the hardy grass, but Kirsty Howie thinks it should be banned. There's absolutely no way the Northern Territory Government should be permitting Gamba to be grown on stations, and we're seeing repeatedly governments turning a blind eye to the very, very real risk that these weeds pose. Mitch Hart has led the Pew Environment Group's campaign for more Gamba action for several years. He's welcomed nearly $10 million from the federal government to tackling Gamba. We'd like to see more detail of what the federal government's Gamba commitment for the $9.8 million over four years is going to start rolling out. Are we really losing the battle with Gamba? Good question. I think it's mixed bag. We've seen more landholders than ever want to get rid of Gamba on their blocks. We've seen increased investment. But what we also know is that's just not at the scale that we need if we're serious about tackling Gamba. The federal government has so far allocated $500,000 of its Gamba money to the NT. Jane Barden reporting there. That's all we've got time for on this edition of PM. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm David Lipson. The PM webpage is where you'll find all our interviews and reports if you want to check them out or share them. Also check out the ABC Listen app. That's where you'll find ABC News Daily with Sam Hawley each weekday morning. We will be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Did you know there's a cyber attack reported in Australia every six minutes? There are criminal groups trying to disrupt our lives and steal our data. But it's countries like China and Russia that are becoming more aggressive in targeting Australian businesses with government secrets. Today, Executive Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX, Catherine Manstead, on why the threat is increasing and how we can protect ourselves. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.